if you like, the map of organized crime suddenly appeared to those investigating it to be hugely bigger than, than they actually realized. And this is, I think, where you start getting politicians starting to worry that, yes, in fact, organized crime is becoming really so dangerous that, it, that we can say that it's up there, you know, with, with terrorism. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Organised crime is now posing as big a threat to countries in the EU as terrorism, a commissioner warned this week. And as criminals, including Irish godfather George the Penguin Mitchell, are left reeling after another major encrypted phone hack, it seems like police are starting to fight fire with fire as the battle against the mobs heats up. This week, on a Crime World weekend show, I'm joined by my colleague Niall Donald and journalist Carl Felstrom to discuss the cartel's intent on turning Europe into a Wild West. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. The European Union this week, again, have kind of issued one of these warnings. They have been hinting at it, maybe not said it as directly. But this week they said that organized crime is posing as big a threat to countries in the European Union as terrorism. Um, And it was Ilva Johansson, who oversees the EU's internal security policy. Uh, She was visiting the port of Antwerp in Belgium, obviously one of the biggest entry points of cocaine into Europe, when she said that basically this threat from organized crime to society is as big as terrorism. Now, we kind of feel we know that, Carl and Niall, and like we've been, you know, there's been so much has happened really in the last 10 years that has given us an insight into how massive organized crime is. People are always asking me, I'm sure you guys are the same, you know, have have people got more vicious? Are they more violent? And you kind of go, ah, they were always the same, but they do seem to have. Well, certainly in relation to the, the IRA in Ireland, like if you look at back at those warnings from the EU 20 years ago, the IRA and the dissident groups would have been featured prominently as in these are a significant threat to the state and people know how they were well organized and well resourced. But in, in Ireland, as we know well, um, the organized crime groups have far overtaken them in terms of resources Um in terms of capability, in terms of weaponry, they've they've left those terrorist groups in 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 the dust, uh, and that's true in Northern Ireland as well. Really. And in a way, Carl, they're kind of taking their crumbs. The terrorist groups. I mean, we know that the Kinahan organisation yeah. were funding Hezbollah and that, but I mean, they they are actually sort of giving them the few bob as such they need, and and you know, the the monthly wage bill maybe. Um, we were talking about there were certain incidents in in certainly in the Netherlands that should have been the turning point. Yeah, I mean the the, the um, just before we go on to that, the the, the, the issue about organised crime, the terrorism, and the, and the threat level. I mean, if we go back um, quite a a while, I mean we're talking twenty years probably, maybe more. You suddenly see the uh, OCGs using exactly the same cell structure setup as the terrorist groups, i.e. having small cells of uh, maybe three or four people doing different jobs, um, um, 
not knowing what another cell um, is doing or even who might be involved there. And, and that was a, a, um, a modus operandi that, that was used to restrict um, the potential for uh, a takedown of the top uh, guys by linking them to, to various people and having um, cells dismantled um, and people talking about what they knew about what was going on because they only knew little parts of the job. So it's interesting that we've moved on now. And, you know, the more that we see more organized crime groups emerging, we see that that structure has developed over time. Um, we get the, 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 the classic um, situation of, of corrupting officials. The money is there to do that. Um, basically threatening the whole structure of the justice system and ultimately being all powerful. And at the same time as that, also having links to terrorist groups via, um, you know, firearms um, movement and, and so forth. Um, and so when we get to the situation in the Netherlands, which I, I'm trying to remember the year it happened, now it must be around... 2013. Yeah, I'll, have, like I'll have a look while you're talking about it. I have my yeah, and um, we get a guy who is involved on the periphery of one of one of the groups. Uh, there's there's basically been a, a big falling out between some groups over a missing batch of cocaine, and there's been um, a, a power struggle as well as uh, some revenge going on, uh, tit for tat stuff, uh, a lot of assassinations. And we get to this point where a young lad who is involved on the periphery of one of the groups may be flitting between two between two different groups. Um, they find the body of of this guy in a car, burnt out car, and except he's missing his head. And then the following day, um, in the middle of Amsterdam outside a shisha lounge, which is linked to the dispute, they find um, the head of this lad. Um, literally on on the street, um, and it's an incredibly shocking um, thing to happen. It's the kind of thing that you would, would only expect happening in Mexico or Colombia or something like that, and yet it's here, um, you know, on European streets, and and it it, it looks to me at that time like uh, a big um, change in in um, the way things are happening in in European organized crime groups, i.e. they are becoming more violent and they're stopping at nothing to send their message away. And, and actually know, it we, wasn't as far back as 2013, would you believe it was 2016 that happened? 2016. In, yeah. Okay. And, yeah. Um, you know, the, the gangs in dispute were linked in, of course, with the Kinahan cartel and there was plenty of links here to Ireland. I mean, yeah. we were writing about that case here in Ireland and it was utterly shocking. Of course, and one of the one of those members, those feuding gangs, eventually was caught in an apartment in Dublin, um, which was being set up by the by the Kinnan organised crime group. It was a safe house here in Dublin. Nwafal Fassi was found. He was discovered during a search on some Kinnahan premises, and he was found, I think, with an Irish passport, wasn't he? He was found with an Irish. Oh well, yeah, he was found with a fake passport anyway. Yeah. And yeah, it just shows you the the interconnectedness of it. But mm. I do remember reading about that and thinking, you know, like that is something that could never happen in Ireland, like that. Or in Europe, in Europe, mm. or that's another. Yeah. That's a, like a whole other world of violence. But of course, 
just today we have somebody being on Friday being convicted for uh, something very similar in Ireland. Uh, Paul Crosby is sent convicted today, given a ten-year sentence um, for his role in the murder of Keen Mulready Woods, in which a, a, a child, a seventeen-year-old boy, was was dismembered, and his head was also found uh, at a location in Dublin. I mean, a crime that, for from our perspective, I remember reading about the case in Holland and thinking this is this this isn't like it, it couldn't happen in 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 Ireland but it did and yeah. there's two people have been convicted of it today and like why didn't why wasn't there an immediate like outrage complete and utter about that by from Europe Paul and I mean what can they do they're talking about obviously police forces need to work together which they have been doing more successfully um we mm. were talking earlier Carlin you mentioned back in the sort of early 2000s that really you know and 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 just around that time the turn of the century I suppose even the Spanish and the the Brits and the Irish weren't working very well together. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas we have moved on a bit now. It took law enforcement a while to kind of get over the fact that the borders were down in Europe. They're gone back up now from your crowd, but um, we're still. I think. I think. Um, I think the the sort of the uh, invention of Europol Europol helped in that relationship to try and tie together. And some of the relationships that weren't there maybe before. And that has Europol, it's not seen as a heavyweight organization, but what it does is it draws together the uh the the relevant parties from each different country now in a way which that wasn't happening previously, maybe. And um and they've been absolutely pivotal in changing the relationship between Europe and, and Dubai as well, um, in in getting um, you know. Uh, a good relationship going so that they can uh, actually have extraditions going on, whereas previously that would have been impossible. So, um, yeah, I mean, that the, 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 there's, there's definitely a better atmosphere now between and relationship between um, the law enforcement agencies in different countries that, that wasn't there before. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, as we're probably going to go on to talk about the 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 the, the big uh, story in um, organised crime, um, I think for this decade is the smashing of the encrypted phone networks and the continuing battle on that. I mean, um, that as 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 we've sort of spoken about before, you only see a you only see the sort of product of that. Um, you know, maybe in court cases that are turning up, but in actual fact, what, what has happened is it has, uh, generated a huge amount, huge amount of intelligence. It's given, um, a, a window which they've never had before into, um, the organized crime world, who's talking to who, what they might be planning, uh, in great detail because these guys felt so safe that they didn't use, didn't need to use code word anymore. They were talking in in general terms about what what was going to happen, and um, I think that first uh, hack, uh, the EncroChat hack, uh, the big one, uh, which was around six sixty thousand subscribers, I think, um, somewhere of that that nature, that um, has been a shock to to the system because it's sort of um, it's given them a a much more detailed illustration of what's going on 
um, you know, behind the scenes um, with these groups that, you know, let's face it, gone are the days when they could put informants in um, because it's just too dangerous to do that. So the um, and and also you get limited amounts of intelligence from that, but the, the actual hacking of their phones has opened up a, a, a massive, um, you know, window of knowledge for for law enforcement across Europe. And it's kind of given them a bit of a reality shock as well, hasn't it? Because up until that point, we were dealing with, you know, a, a, they'd get, they'd seize a certain amount of cocaine, they'd multiply that by 10 and reckon that's what was coming in and they'd kind of get the street value of it and work it out. It was all that the maths were a little bit sort of... Um, pie in the sky. But I think these mm. um, actual hacks and on EncroChat, they were listening in for up to four to six months on what was going yeah. on. It was like a window into the underworld and it was mm. shocking for them. It was shocking. And of course, what, what has happened as, you know, crime has become more international in over the last couple of decades, like the, the guys at the top of the, the ladder had to operate hands they were operating totally to hands off and the way that they could do that from dubai or somewhere else was they had to do it over phones and you could see that with the some of the rafael imperiale who was an associate of 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 the the, the morocco dutch moroccan gangs and the, the kinahans like he was effectively running his whole business over over an encrypted phone network i don't think it was encrochat and you know that's how we could operate from Dubai and how they could keep control. So they really do need these things because as they as they become so so big. And EncroChat, there seems to have been most activity in the aftermath of it in the UK, Carl, because especially around Liverpool, everybody involved in organised yeah. crime in Liverpool appeared to have an EncroChat phone. Yeah. You only have to go on every day. You're seeing the stuff. Yeah, no, in I think somebody. Desk. I think there's some uh, newspaper that uh, one of the, the Liverpool newspapers would have seventy nine. 79 yeah. shots of people yeah. done on EncroChat, like, which is incredible. I mean, obviously it's over and a calendar year. they're actually found guilty. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, many more coming yeah. before the courts. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so it was, yeah. Uh, still, there's still a massive backlog on uh, on cases to be heard yet. I mean, some of those will be, you know, questionable whether they'll, they'll go through the whole system, you know, but, and there's obviously there's been legal disputes as to how, you know, is is the hacking of EncroChat legal in certain countries? And and there's been a little bit of uh, 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 greyness about that. But um, but interestingly, um, some of the uh, you know it hasn't necessarily pulled down the top top guys. Um, what it has done is it, is is illustrate and expose just how big. Um, the organized crime group industry is in the sense that we suddenly have this that the, 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 the if you like the map of organized crime suddenly appeared to those investigating it to be hugely bigger than than um than they actually realized it and many 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 more people involved in it than they actually realized it and you know it's a huge industry in its own right um and this is, I think, where you start getting politicians starting to worry that, yes, in fact, organized crime is becoming really so um, dangerous that it, that we can say that it's up there 
you know, with, with terrorism. Yeah, it's really um, um, a shadow economy, like when you hear them, because a lot yeah. of the guys in, 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 in Liverpool, I read them almost all every day, and they're kind of the middle managers, really, aren't they? They're the local wholesalers, yeah. but there's huge amounts of money involved. Yeah. So these aren't, these aren't traffickers or people importing drugs in, they're just moving in their local community. Yeah. And yeah. with that amount of money, like it is a, it is a secondary economy going on, mm. even in a highly developed country like, like the UK. And that then mm. leads to the risk of corruption. There was a funny one during the week about a guy who was caught. He had a Conor McGregor mural, <laughs> massive Conor McGregor mural on his wall. So that, that made the Sunday world. And had that, had he, oh, that was, that was how he was caught. Yeah, it was caught because it was. Because he was photographed yeah, with yeah, this yeah, behind yeah. him. Be yeah. like me doing something with this yeah, behind me. Don't do anything in the crime world studio. And you yeah, okay, I won't. I'll just, I'll calm myself. <laughs> yeah. The Sky ECC hack followed EncroChat and it seemed to have been the, the mobile system of use in Belgium and the Netherlands uh, in mm -hmm. particular. And I recall speaking to a, a colleague of ours actually in Belgium who's based in Antwerp. I think that was the real eye opener about the amount that was coming in through Antwerp, through Rotterdam yeah. and the amount of corruption, because yeah. they were saying at the time that there was actually so much intelligence gathered that they didn't actually have enough police employed in Europe to yeah. to follow it up. So what they had to do was obviously prioritize, you know, that was a job in itself, but they did prioritize initially the corruption. So they first yeah. went after the, the port workers and the police and the, you know, all these people with, look, they just dangle some money sometimes under their noses. Sometimes they have addiction issues. Sometimes they're people who are in debt. They're looking to pay their kids school fees. Loads of different different reasons. Um. And I think money buys everything. Well, it does, and of course, that's that. If you if you compare them to terrorist organisations, the sheer level of money that these organised crime groups are are able to spend makes a huge difference. And it's kind of like the the Premier League in England, where there's just one these groups with just massive amounts of money, and they can really dominate the whole the whole system. Um, you know, particularly like exactly with people like there was a passport office worker done and people that, you know, presumably on modest, normal incomes, mm. you know, and they're being having access to this money. And it's it is very corrupting. And Carl, would you consider, say, from 2000 onwards being the absolute golden era of the sort of the the cocaine, the organized crime? Are we forgetting about the 80s and the 90s? Um, I think there's no doubt in my mind that, that that there has been an explosion. I mean, all the data, all the data says that. You know, um, <clears throat> the fact that you can look at the uh, seizures at, say, Antwerp and see how much they've gone up over the years. There's a there's uh, and and also um, expanding into other countries that 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 previously haven't had issues. You know, I know there's. There's quite strong links between some of the Dutch guys and some of the groups in Sweden and Finland, um, you know, where things have been hotting up in, you know, say Sweden, a country where you wouldn't think that um, <clears throat> they've got any problems there. And they've had, you know, some serious stuff going off with grenades and bombs and shootings um, you know, in, in some of the major ur urban areas in Sweden, um, linked to um, guys who have links to the Dutch Moroccans uh, moving cocaine and uh, the Albanians. 
And, um, you know, I think it's without a doubt, you know, you can say that we're right in the middle of the peak, if you like, of, um, you know, moving of cocaine um, as the major product in terms of organized crime. Yeah. But they will, they will, you know, there will come a point where that doesn't work anymore and, and, uh, or, you know, something else will take its place. Um, you know, and, like what? And you, there doesn't seem to be anything well, else out there. And it just the, seems to be a balloon that just keeps. Well, the Mexican gangs seem to be moving into yeah. fentanyl and, mm. and these oh, yeah, types of exactly, yeah. synthetic, exactly. synthetic drugs seem to be. Well, we've never really seemed to have taken to them in Europe. You know what I mean? We don't seem to be really what our tastes like wine connoisseurs. Um, but th- those things have never really caught on here are certainly in, in a lot of Europe. Not yet, I think. Yeah. Um, I mm. think they're, 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 maybe they're, you know, we do tend to follow the US. If you look uh, a decade after, maybe the the cocaine boom in, in the US, which came in the 80s, the late mm. 80s, and then moved to Europe, took a, another decade. I don't know. And crack certainly is something more problematic here now than it was ever before. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you know, exactly, exactly there. You know, the the situation with crack took off in in America in the uh, in the eighties, uh, and then you know, suddenly about ten years later, you suddenly start seeing what would be relatively very small seizures of of crack, um, forty raps or something like that. You know, and the law enforcement in UK and law enforcement hadn't seen this stuff before, you know, it was all kind of a bit of a, uh, a mythology surrounding it and suddenly it's turning up. And then um, really you go through the eighties, through the um, sort of late eighties and nineties period. And you get areas of London where they have real, they had real, real crap problems going on there, you know, mm. um, yeah, so Nas right in that, that if you look at what the the trends in the in the United States and and South America, um, you know Europe does seem to uh, be impacted by by the same kinds of things. You know, maybe a decade later. Mm. I mean, the fentanyl—they're mm. screaming from the rooftops about it in the U.S. because of the amount of deaths. Yeah, caused by I mean, it and the pressures on the health service. Absolute genuine epidemic. And mm. um, like also, it, it you know, in terms of the production of it, it can be done almost anywhere. I mean, I know a lot of it is meant to have come from China and places like that. So, you know, the traditional law enforcement model that's there to stop maybe drugs leaving Colombia or whatever, it doesn't have to come from there, even though the, the Mexican... You cartons. see, that has to be the future of it because it's always been the transport that's been tricky, really, isn't it? It's where they get, they lose their the loads or else they, they fall out or whatever happens. But the transporting of the drugs around the world is the real... Yeah, that's where the risk... Where the risk is, yeah. essentially. So yeah. if you're producing something just on your home turf, that risk as such is gone. Your factory can be, can be discovered or whatever, but... Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, look, you know, in Dublin, you only have to walk outside the door and see the effect of um, the, uh, the the sale of, of prescription medication. The illicit sale of prescription medication has absolutely become a massive, massive issue in this city. I mean, it's not affecting every area of, this, of the city, but it's a huge, huge area. And that didn't exist mm. largely a number of years ago. And it's just everywhere. You can walk down the street there and see Packet, packets of 
of of benzodiazepines or whatever empty packets and you know it's a huge issue and it causes a mm. huge health impact as well because it's so dangerous in terms of overdoses mm. and deaths for sure yeah. carl we let you go but before you do tell me this much because uh you know all journalists have to be asked this question and we have to scrabble around for something that's an answer to it but what do you think europe can do what do you think that is it just enough to sit up and recognize the threat um, no, of course it's not. But I mean, it's good that some of them are coming out and saying, look, this is, I mean, I remember when I think it was Sir Paul Stevenson when he was uh, at the Met, um, one of the last things he said before he was sacked was that watch out for organised crime. It, it's it's going to grow like nobody's business. And I think that was around about 2010, something like that. And his words of have been proved to be true as far as the UK goes and, and the rest of Europe. I think that, um, yes, they are doing little things and also big things as well, that, that, that like, you know, hacking of EncroChat and, and various other encrypted phone networks. They are doing big things like that. They are doing big things like addressing the issue of Dubai. Uh, they're doing the best they can, um, but... You know, they're kind of like slightly hands tied in that they need everybody to be on board with this whole thing. And um, ultimately, things won't change if um, at, at the lowest level that that organized crime operates on, which is the street level, things won't change unless uh, there, are, there, are, there, there, there are issues to be addressed there as far as young people go, because at the moment, they're... Uh, young people will go down that route because it's the easiest route to earn money. And if there's no um, hope out there for them, or they can't see any hope for um, a normal um, a normal life um, of earning some wages, then they will be attracted into organised crime, and that that's what has been happening um, for you know a good fifteen years on a very intensive level, you know, and. You know, as we've seen, there is uh, an issue about why are there a lot of Albanian young men coming into the UK at the moment. And I have no doubt at all that some of it is connected with setting up uh, little cells uh, within the UK to, uh, to um, you know, work the organised crime route, mm. route. All has to be watched. Well, look, Carl Felstrom, thank you very much. Thanks, Carl. Thanks. Cool. Clodagh, do you want to? The recording has stopped. Brilliant. Listen, thanks a million, Carl. I'll be in touch with you, okay? We're going to oh, continue on here for about yeah. 20 thanks, minutes Carl. or so. Um, no. Thanks a million. Will you keep in touch with me about what's happening in, with, with course, Dawes? Will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll keep you posted. Yeah, probably, won't, probably won't get to the case till um, the end of this year. But, uh, I mean, hopefully I don't have to be a witness uh, during the case, I've got my bits done there, so I can go over there and 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 be there as a journalist rather than you know uh, be under the microscope, so to speak. Right. But yeah, I'm looking forward to actually be um, be the end of a very long journey for me, and I can finally get this fucking book out. You know, for sure, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, but, uh, brilliant. Yeah. Listen, I'll talk yeah. to you over the next few weeks or so. Yeah. Thanks, Carl. So this week. There has been 
all sorts of stuff going on. But one mad story. Yeah. I mean, did you see this coming in and were you like, what in the name of God? Yeah, I mean, it in just... Spain, a associate of Mr. Flashy is uh, saved by the fast acting well, yeah, Spanish I mean, police. Like, the, obviously, um, well, it, it did. It, obviously, the, the, the attempted murder happened in September, but there was an arrest this week um, of what's described as an extremely violent uh, British gang. And it's the, basically what the Spanish described them as is a hitman for hire. There were six of them arrested in a series of raids across Estepona, Porta Benus area, uh, Marbella. Um, so these are a, a gang of British guys who are basically hit operators, hitmen for hire across Spain. Um, and what they were arrested for, though, was the shooting of shooting at three Irishmen and attempted murder um, of three Irishmen in September. Three Irish guys were fishing um, in a place called Turtle Lake near uh, in Marbella. And these uh, these hitmen drove up in a car, shot at them. One of one of the men in his mid twenties, a guy from Finglas, uh, was shot in the side. Uh, lucky to, lucky to survive, absolutely. Um, he is a guy who's known to the Gardaí, um, a known associate of Mister Mister Flashy. We all know who Mister Flashy is in terms of his um, being regarded as the head of a drugs gang operating mostly in the Finglas area. The man who suffered the gunshot wounds will be somebody who's been very well known to pal around with him um, had been come under the guard of radar during, if you remember, there's a series of feuds involving Mr. Flashy, you know, basically three or four of them, sub feuds all over the place. Yeah. Tit for tat shootings. There was firebomb yes. attacks on houses, on yes. cars, etc. Very complex. But one of the feuds that his associates were involved in was in Corduff. This guy who's, who was shot in Spain was, was linked to that feud. Um, so it was an incredible uh, uh, operation. I mean, I don't know if you saw the video. That's what I was going to say. And we'll attempt to put the video up on, on our YouTube. YouTube channel so yeah. people can see it, you know, if you're if you're tuning into this. And we'll certainly maybe try and put it up on any of the social media around yes. Crime World or Sunday World. But I found it extraordinary because, so the Spanish do release these videos sometimes. And it was the Guarda Civil who went in and um, they bust their way into this luxurious looking villa and they wake everybody up. So it's obviously the middle of the night, early mornings. But these guys, these hitmen are all living together. So they're, yeah. ha they're having a little kind of like a, they're living together, these yeah, hitmen yeah, yeah. in this kind of shared house. It's like girl guides or something. Yeah, and it's a bit like a, yeah. There was a dog came down the stairs. Now, was that a police dog at one stage? Another I don't, was, don't know. There actually. was a police dog there at one point, but... This dog seemed to come out of the bedroom as if one of them had a dog. I mean, are these guys based there, living there, and they're just freelancing? Now, we've seen something like this before from a, a sort of an Eastern European yeah. Russian mob that Imre Arrakis was involved yeah. in. There was up to 200 members of them based on the Costa del Sol, and they were freelance hitmen for hiring enforcers. Well, that's, I mean, that's how it's described. Um, I think they're living in in rented accommodation moving across Spain um, you know solely operating as as a cell of hitmen for hire um, like the level of weaponry that was taken out was quite shocking I mean I, I wouldn't know there. I mean I wouldn't know myself but one of them the, a submachine gun capable of firing 850 rounds per minute described as a scorpion I think it's a 
um, an Eastern European gun, um, four handguns at least, and a Smith & Wesson uh, pistol as well. So, I mean, these are all caught at the site. It's, you know, this, this shows you just how how dangerous these people are. And also, I suppose it shows how... Um, balaclavas and... Balaclavas, cable ties. Themselves, cable ties. What's the big, long... Well, I think that's the Scorpion machine gun. No, no, the Defence Electrica police. It looks like a big, huge sort of stun. You know those... Oh, yeah, there was tasers and, tasers. and things like that yeah. recovered as well. So... Like this, this is what, I mean, of course, we have had our own sort of hitmen for hire over in Spain, mm. operating in Spain. Eric Lucky Wilson would have been an example of one of them who certainly was associated with the Kinahan cartel, but really operated as a as a, a, a kind of a hitman for hire for any of the Irish or British gangs. And when he was actually arrested, it was because he went out one night and now he was, you know, suspected of being responsible for up to 20 sort of murders or attempted murders here. He used to actually punt for business and at one point furnished two sides of a feuding gang with a list of associates of the other gang that could be taken out, including what day, date and the likelihood of him getting them would be. Um, he was actually, there was a bit of heat on him here and he went over to Spain. Now, when he was arrested because he went out one night, got drunk, a guy in a pub, kind of like just an ordinary punter, annoyed him because he he maybe... Something trivial, I think. Trivial, like yeah. back off that woman yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah. Wilson had kind of spoken to this woman and your man told him to back off. And he came back on a bike and shot him dead on the terrace of the bar. Now, he was caught. But when they raided, he was living in this sort of isolated farmhouse in a place called Coyne. Yeah. I'm sure I'm maybe not pronouncing that right, but... um it's it's inland a bit. It's not on the sea. And it was this far. And they found all this ammunition. And beside his bedside, in his bedside locker, they found guns and grenades, grenades and everything. Covered, yeah. I mean, this was really weird stuff. Like, Yeah. And I mean, this this seems maybe something equivalent. A yeah. A, a group that operates. And it just shows you that, that although we kind of think of the, the head men maybe over in Dubai and having moved out of Spain, Spain really still is an epicenter for... For a lot of the drug trafficking business, there's been increasing violence. Um, some of it involving Irish people have been shot in over even over the last 12 months. Um, but the level of violence that has has really escalated in Marbella as there's been, people have described it as kind of a breakdown in control, some of which is the, the diminishment of the, the Kinahan cartels control of that area and the movement of, of Eastern European gangs and stuff in there. And I suppose the protection the Kinahan cartel once levelled on people who were within, yeah. you know, its umbrella. And Flashy, of course, was exactly one of those. Yeah. He was trained up by Trevor Byrne, who's in jail um, on gun offences, would have been a, a senior figure in the Kinahan mob. And, you know, he was in the process of kind of like bringing up Underlings. Yeah, he was kind of a, a yeah. They were kind of mentoring Mister mm. uh, uh, Flashy. He was a, a young guy who who had a, a a group of young young guys around them and really operated as the foot soldiers for for the Kinning Cartel in 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 Finglas. But as the the feud went on, a number of senior figures either had to leave the country or ended up behind bars, and therefore these young younger guys took total control. Now. He's always described as an associate of the Kinahan cartel. Doesn't mean that he's... But that doesn't seem to be any longer holding that same... No, and I think, you know, it's it's not as if Daniel is inviting him over for, for his birthday in Dubai. Mm. These guys might never have met anybody 
beyond a certain level within that organization. Um, so yeah, there's an absolute. But they had that protection. Nobody would have gone for did, them really. They absolutely, and that did. is definitely gone. I mean, the idea that a you know house chair of British hitmen would go last September for an associate a flashing mm. in that region, which was once all and totally controlled by the Kinnahans. We talk about Ireland being controlled by them. So was the Costa. They owned literally parts of that Costa del Sol, and these guys were obviously there, probably hiding out from what was happening in Ireland yeah. and their 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 attacked on yeah, that turf I mean, is incredible. Yeah, the motive for this this particular shooting doesn't seem clear, but obviously yeah. when you're you're involving people like a six man hit team, you're you know, there's somebody is paying for it and somebody is determined to, to do it. It's not a moment of of kind of madness, I suppose. But anybody who's listening should go and look at the video and just have a look at just how it's it's great that, that some of the, the the international police forces the, the way they make journalists' jobs a lot easier I by know. putting out these videos, isn't it? Yeah, thank um, God they do because uh, we don't see much coming from the uh, the Irish press. We don't. Office, we don't. To be honest with you, no, we don't. The Garda Shikona are very very slow to kind of move with the times and embrace uh, the media because they, it can work for them as well. I mean, the fact of the matter is, the Spanish police, the Guardia Civil, the National Police, and the others and the NCA in the UK and everybody else are state funded. You know, yeah. they're, they're paid for by taxpayers money. And it is good to see the good stuff because I suppose like any organization, big organization, they get a lot of criticism. And yet by showing up, look what we have busted here. Look mm. what we did here. And video draws everybody to it. I mean, you can talk till the cows come home, but really when you see a little bit of moving video, um, you well, know, it's... Shocker, journalists call for... Better, better footage to be released by the Guardian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm making an appeal here today for the Guardian Shikona to up their game and uh, start releasing make our lives some e- earlier, easier. Huh? It make our lives easier, exactly. So yeah, so that's an extraordinary story. And the other thing we touched on it um, with uh, with Carl Felstrom, but I wanted to go into it in a little bit more detail because, of course, I was there for the sentence hearing of uh, Paul Crosby, and I told you at the time. There was a cockiness to him. There was, he's a small little guy, a bit like yourself. I'd <laughs> no, say they'd have to move the camera. No, no. He's just a little bit, a little bit taller no. than you. No, he would probably wouldn't be well above the, uh, the, the international average for a man. <laughs> but anyway, um, not that there's anything funny about no. this story, but he, he, he was, there was a cockiness to him when he came in and he stood in court and, you know, he turned around and he winked at myself and other female journalists as he waited to hear the details of the case. Keen Mulready Woods, of course, horrifically murdered and his body dismembered and left around parts of Dublin. Uh, Robbie Lawler, the man responsible for that death, was later killed himself in Belfast. But others that were seen as being on the periphery of it are before the courts. And Crosby was yeah, he sentenced, was sentenced today, just where we come in. Yeah, he was sentenced to, to 10 years in prison. So what um, was the maximum he could have got? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think there is a longer sentence. I don't mm-hmm. know if there even is a... a so he a, pleaded guilty, so he would have got... pleaded guilty. I think there, there, there could be longer sentences. I don't know if there is even sentence... Uh, guidelines specifically laid down but his charge was facilitating the charge is is basically helping a crime gang in the commission in the murder of of Keen Mulready Woods yeah these charges can be kind of long long and complicated um it's it's a hefty sentence i suppose um as in in terms of people other people have been done for similar for a similar offense and have gotten shorter sentences um and i think 
you know, from the family may certainly view that as not being a hefty sentence. And I, that would be certainly be an understandable position to take mm. in terms of the, what we've seen gone through the special criminal court in recent years. That would have been one of the longer ones for a crime of that e- equivalent to that. Because um, his co-accused, Jared Cruz, uh, got seven years. He got seven years, a lesser yeah. sentence. Now, Paul Crosby does have, I think it was something like 40 previous Do you know what age he is? But he's only in his, is he 23 or 24? 27. 27. Yeah. So, I mean, look, it was described in court by Justice uh, Tony Hunt as um, a heinous and appalling crime. Mm. And, you know, we've talked about it so much. We've read about it so much. It can nearly... um, But it shocks you every time still, doesn't it? And it should shock you every time, I think, because for a 17-year-old, for a child by any definition, still Mm. a child to be killed in that way. Um, And then for his remains to be treated in that manner, for his family to have to live with that forevermore. Obviously, Kim Mulready Woods was, he was dismembered and various parts of his body were left across various locations in in County Loud and in Dublin. Um, You know, it still, it should be, it, it it should not be. It should forever shock us, really. It should forever it. shock us. I mean, it's... it's. It would be a sorry day if you were able to sit here and not... No, it is like a Taking really, a breath again when yeah. you think about the, the barbarity of it, really. Yeah, and again, Justice Tony Hunt described, you know, Keen Mulready's, the, the crime as being disgraceful, inhuman, um, you know, that it beggars belief that, that, that his remains were... Were were treated in this way, and that his painful and natural death would, would would always live with the the family, you know, um, and like it is, it is, it is a particularly uh, sort of for a crime like that to be committed in a, in a civilized country is should not be, you know, shouldn't be normalized or or. And Justice Tony Hunt, in the course of the sentence hearing from. Memory and now in the sentencing has recognised that Robbie Lawler was the murderer. Yeah, um, which is unusual for somebody who hasn't been convicted to be no. kind of named before the courts in such a yeah a you know definitive manner. Yeah, um, but he said that Crosby and Cruz were involved in acquiring this Toyota van, which was used in the removal and the disposal of the child's remains. They brought him to the murder scene because actually he met with Crosby that night. Yeah, Keen Mulready Woods that evening Keen Mulready in a Woods, shop. Yes, they, and they, Cruz drove them to Rathmullen Park. Yeah, and he said they brought him to the murder scene where he was last seen alive with Lawler and two others and Cruz bought false plates for a car that was later used to bring the child's remains to Dublin. Now, their assistance obviously uh, meant that Lawler could do and initially get away with what he did because he was later killed in, in April. I mean, I imagine had he lived, he would have been before the courts at this point. There wasn't a massive big professional cleanup. No, I mean, I think there was, there was there enough was evidence some, that he would yeah. have eventually been picked up. He was obviously seen entering the house, CCTV, um, you know, he would have, he would have eventually faced justice. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a, just, just a horrible, horrible mm-hmm. tale. And, and I we're mean, two years on from that, three years nearly actually on from it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Crosby, the judge found, was a notch or two higher in the kind of the, the pecking order than Cruz because I think he took direct orders from Laura. Yeah, but uh, Cruz said he, he didn't know what was going to happen. 
um, that he didn't, he, you know, that he seemed fine as he was brought to the house, he said, about, about Keen Mulready Woods. So he, he serves a seven-year sentence. He also has a, a, a criminal past. I think he past. knew him as well from when he was a smaller child and all the rest of it. And he was had claimed that he had sort of addiction issues and needed <laughs> money at the time and that. Anyway, um, what I'm interested in is how do you think the likes of Paul Crosby is going to get on behind bars and what is next for him? Because we're after saying he's 27, 10 years, that means he'll serve, what, seven? Something so like he's seven, gonna be seven out. and a half. He's going to be out at about 34. Similar enough to the path taken by Robbie Lawler by himself. Robbie Lawler himself yeah. Who, when he was about to be released from prison at the end of last year, his associates had been involved in, in the, the, Drogheda, uh, the Drogheda feud. Um, a close associate of his, Richie Carberry, had been killed. He was baying for blood. And the Gardaí had to issue a bulletin to any relevant police stations where he might be near to basically tell the Gardaí to approach him with caution. He was that dangerous. I mean, Paul Crosby will be a young man, in, certainly in criminal terms, to be a young man. In During his time in prison, he's far from kept his nose clean. There are people, of course, who go into prison and actually genuinely seem to turn their lives around. And He seems to have a volatile nature. He seems to have a volatile nature and he's hooked up with... Again, like people that are broadly considered Kinnan cartel soldiers, I suppose, um, he's caused, he's been in trouble a number of times in prison, some of it for relatively minor offences, like being caught with a phone. But, you know, he's he's certainly been throwing his weight around. And has he been linked in, has he cozied up with the Kinnan? He's, he's cozied up with, with certain factions of the Kinnan cartel and has been a suspect in in. in a degree of violence behind behind bars as well. What do you do with somebody like that? I mean, because in the end of the day, we talk about restorative justice. We talk about all this sort of stuff. I mean, Paul Crosby is going into prison and he's going to come out probably a far more violent and dangerous criminal and with a lot more connections. Yeah, if he I survives mean, prison, if he, you know, he lives to see the day of freedom again. Um, well, you see, this is, this is the funny thing about prison. Does it work? Does it not work? What are the consequences of... What's the alternative well, with I somebody like I him? Mean, I don't know what the alternative or is there an alternative? And maybe the system is just doomed to be imperfect. But certainly we've seen some criminals, certainly some criminals from parts of rural Ireland go into prison at a relatively low level and come out with the, the absolute top connections, mm. the personal connections with major criminal figures and go on and it's almost like going to university, uh, going to prison. It's an education. There's no it's doubt It's an education about it. and it's 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 the connection and people telling mm. you what to do and what not to do. And so it that could, that can be a consequence. Now you have to say there are people who other people who go to prison who I, it becomes a low point, a rock bottom for them, and they transform That's their lives. That's hundred percent, and they get some. Some of them will get the help, like the anger management courses, the yeah. you know the AA, education. the gambling anonymous, all that stuff. Yeah. The education, everything that they were yeah. denied. Some of them will be, you know, seen as they, there was misdiagnosis for learning disorders, that yeah. kind of thing. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I yeah. think and. That's what it's actually all about, yeah. really. Is and to it try can and be, and it probably is there if you want it to be. Mm. But you cannot make somebody. You can't want make it. somebody you want can't to make be. somebody want it. And, and look, maybe he will turn his life around and everything. But it's just a grim-looking prospect of 
a guy who at that age, at just 27 years of age, has been involved in as much as he's been in. And bear in mind, he, of course, was the individual who made the taunting phone call to Owen Maguire. Owen Maguire, who was shot by Robbie Lawler, survived and has ended up in with catastrophic injuries in a wheelchair. And he made this taunting phone call. Yeah to him saying that he was calling up to him with some nappies and he wanted to bring him for a walk. And yeah. I mean, the, the the confidence, the arrogance of that, you know, listening to that phone call and. Um, yeah, I think some of the scary part of it, if you want to consider it, that is that Paul Crosby was, was not in, in some ways he was a dangerous and violent person, but obviously the addition of Robbie Lawler to, yeah. to that, to that gang. Yeah escalated their, the level of violence that they were prepared to use mm. to a great level. Paul Crosby was not a sort of a clever, organized criminal or anything of the sort. He was very, he had he'd already uh, gone on trial for an attempted murder and could have been behind bars for that murder, but was found not guilty ultimately in a court of law. Um, look, I was always told about Paul Crosby that he, he, he had been, ended up, being a runner boy, as they call it, or, a, you know, a, a gopher, really, as mm. a teenager for the Maguires. And they had treated him really, really badly. He had been bullied and pushed around by them, um, you know, beaten up on occasions. Um, he'd been with people that were maybe 10 years older or whatever. So not dissimilar than other stories mm. we have heard. And that he had, when he had come of age, if you want, that he had been wanted to go to war with them because of that treatment. Um, so it's a cycle of violence. Does the cycle of violence stop because he's behind bars? It certainly doesn't. But then again, you have to commend the Gardaí and the people mm. who brought him to justice. Do they have to deal with them? And I mean, when you look at similar characters to him, and I would consider like, say, you know, Rue Redmond, Bernard Fogarty, similar characters, Robbie Lawler. Yeah. And like, Nowadays, because we because they do get out in social media, we can actually see what they're like. Yeah. And they are salivating with their anger. Yeah. You know, and their threats to people. And you can just see the absolute lack of control, the volatile nature and more than likely that mixed with, you know, whatever substances they're taking, which are usually steroids and cocaine. Yeah. And a desire to to put this on social media for it to be seen and to be consumed by people, not to you know, hide it away and, you know. But it's a level of anger that seems almost like it, it is abnormal. It is inhumane. Yeah. It's it's coming from somewhere. Well, it's diso- is it disordered? It I mean, sure, sure is that. Yeah, yeah. And you like to have a label for everybody, don't <laughs> yeah, you? Yeah, but I do. What did you diagnose me with? Was it histrionic personality disorder? No, no it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Histrionic personality no, 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 disorder. I know no. who you diagnosed that. Oh, we won't no. say it publicly. <laughs> no, no. I think I was... Oh, it was maybe narcissistic, was it? Well, it's one of them anyway. It's, I'm not a good... And what about... <laughs> what about me? I'm just... What a, about you? Just a nice guy. Nicky. No, don't Trying think so. Trying to make no. it in this world. I think we all probably are a touch of something, but... A nice, um, average-sized guy trying to make it in this I world. I liked that histrionic one, though. <laughs> I thought that was it was a quite good a good disorder. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, no, I mean, look, people... There are anti, There is a thing called antisocial personality disorder mm. where people are, you know, these are people that commit sort of psychopathic crimes it mm. used to be called that that's probably not a medical term that's used anymore these are people that react with violence to being uh, per- particularly to be seen if they're snubbed or disrespected that they react with this extreme violence and driven by a kind of fragile ego 
and antisocial personality disorder uh, is kind of maybe a new term for what people would call psycho psychopaths or sociopaths, which everybody has a different kind of a yeah. meaning for those. But ultimately, I think one is that, you know, you're born with the condition that you don't feel an empathy and maybe you can live as a psychopath without being violent. Yeah. You can just not feel an empathy. But uh, a sociopath is maybe, you know, molded by their environment. And there's no doubt about it. But, you know, if you're if you're bothered to listen or to delve in any of these cases, there's very few of these guys, 27 year olds, 35 year olds, younger, whatever age they are, that have come from a loving, secure home. No, I mean, it's very, look, people come from terrible, terrible conditions and, you know, they don't go on and do these things. But nonetheless, there is a, a repetition of 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 childhood trauma mm. in a lot of these, the, the, the past of a lot of these criminals. And um, that's not to excuse it or say people that are adults. No, it's not to excuse it, but you can't ignore it either. No. And, and the fact of the matter is that in an awful lot, and I'd say nearly all of these cases, when you look back, if you actually get an, an attempt to look back, sometimes what's said in court and like for the likes of Paul Crosby, all that was said about him, because I was interested yeah. to try and hear a little bit of background about him. And all that was said was that he'd grown up, that the father was absent from the home Um and, you know, he had dropped out of education as a young age. It's not really enough very much to go no, on when no. you consider what he's standing there being accused of and later, well, convicted of and pleading guilty to. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just a huge rarity that in anybody in in that sort of violent end of organized crime that you can go back and you can just Certainly find. There's, there's childhood trauma, almost yeah. without exception. Um, but people you know, can overcome childhood trauma. They can and they can yeah. go on to be. I mean, thank yeah. God, the majority of people yeah. who live and grow up within traumatic and whatever you'd call them, bad or abusive homes, do not go on to do that. But, um, you know, I think it's uh, sometimes more interesting nearly to listen to the backstory of the yeah. uh, accused. Than yeah, I mean, it is. And it's, it's just... It's just what you what you would always like to see with these cases is that 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 cycle of trauma could come to an end. Mm. And unfortunately, what's happened in in the Drada feud is that there's out of the the there's a certain number of people killed, but there's probably dozens, hundreds of people that have been affected and traumatized by what has gone on. Mm. And the fear is that creates another cycle of of trauma and then another cycle of violence. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody there the other night about um, a murder victim and I'm going to be vague about this, but it was a murder victim and um, the family had had no justice, it was a gangland killing and the individual, the next generation, there had been a suicide in the next generation and everybody was affected. You could see it was like a rock was dropped into the middle of a still yeah. pond yes. And the ripple effects went all the way as far as they could go. Yeah. Because everybody, neighbors, community, everybody's affected, friends, everybody. Yeah. And then how they're affected sort of stilts them in their relationships and their parenting and everything else. Yeah. So it's yeah. just enormous, you know. Yeah, because that's that's it. People can say, well, organized crime, it's, you know, there's far more people killed in car crashes. And that's also hugely traumatic. But there is there is a there's collateral damage in every one of these cases and there's the fact that they you know there is that sort of code there that they can't speak up and speak out no. for the victims no. and they they feel that they can't no it's particularly in, in yeah it can be it can become a they can't do that in a courtroom they can't do that with the media they can't no. seem to 
do that within it's sometimes sort of within secret. the local communities you no, know, particularly if these people have excess power the, the gangland criminals mm. like they can have in certain times at certain times in certain communities mm. it's almost like a war zone some places isn't it yeah yeah, I suppose we've been, uh, it's been a fairly heavy show this week, so we'll finish on something um, a little bit lighter. Um, a story, I suppose, where the good guys win. Yeah, or is it, is it, well, it's lighter for, for us, is it? <laughs> but the guy, the guy who lost 200, what is it, 263 million pounds where the cocaine is probably not having a good week, is he? He's probably you're, you're laughing at him, but he's having, he's having a bad yeah, day. Yeah, he's screwed, isn't he? Three tonnes of cocaine was found floating in the ocean and it was seized by New Zealand authorities. It's one of the country's single biggest drug busts. I read somewhere that it would supply New Zealand with cocaine for th- 30 years. 30 years. Can you imagine the party said, yeah. they'd be having there for 30 yeah, years with yeah. that? So, um, it was 81 bales. 81 bales. And they seem to have had a Batman logo on them as well mm-hmm. for some reason. I don't know why that was. Um, but it, it, this kind of happens a bit, doesn't it, that these shipments are found un, unmanned. I don't know if people get aware that, that the police are col- closing in or sometimes they're not picked up. But we've had it, of course, in Ireland as well. We had... Wasn't it 440 million pounds worth of cocaine found floating in the sea off County Cork at one stage? Well, that, in that case, they actually put diesel into petrol engines yeah. and the boat <laughs> yeah, didn't, yeah, yeah. and then it turned over and they yeah. all ended up swimming for the shore and it was absolutely, utterly chaotic. So like accidents can happen as well. They you can, know? they can. And I mean, not. can you imagine if there was a load of cocaine and that thing in the Suez Canal? You wouldn't have thought that ship would have gone no. sideways and got stuck. No, no. So, I mean, I think it was, it's. But in this case, it was found floating. They were strung up with boys and some had these Blackman logos on it. It was presumably dropped for somebody then to come and collect it. And I think they believe it was destined for not just the New Zealand market, Australian. but the Australian market yeah. as well. So it's a funny story. And yeah, like, the man, yeah, I the mean, man seriously, what, which, can you imagine the phone <laughs> oh, call? Uh, oh, I forgot. They've got it all. They've got it all. Would you just yeah. be like... Yeah. You I just mean, wouldn't believe it. Sure you wouldn't. It'd be like, no, ah, you're joking. No. And, and I you're mean, definitely joking. <laughs> I mean, somebody, it's it's always a bit of a mystery. Has somebody prepaid for that or did they pay for it on collection? And obviously, there can, both can happen, I think, in the world of organised crime, yeah. that things are on tick or they're, they're there not. There must have been, a, you know, a group of different, I mean, who would have that money to pay for one shipment? It's a little bit like also betting on a horse. I mean, yeah. I think they do sort of hedge their bets a little bit. And on those huge big containers, while it's great when they come in and they get them in, yeah. um, you know, 10 different syndicates might have put, but still, what, 30, 36 million each, is it? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose it's... It's, it's 360 three. divided by 10. Yes, that's 36 each now. Yes. <laughs> That one. I actually made that easy for myself. Did you? Well done. That shows my intelligence. It does. It does. That. Absolutely. I didn't hit yeah, myself just, with a hard no, sum. No, no, you didn't. You weren't even on Oh, your here, wait till I tell you this now. <laughs> then we're going, we're going and that's it. But wait till I tell you this. Hmm. I got jury summonsed. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, I nearly died when I saw it. I thought, not do again. they not know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> So, and it's Nicola Talent's the address and everything and my jury ID number and I'm to show up, present myself in the courts of mm. law on the whatever of March and I go, oh my God. And then you kind of go, how do you get out of this? Like, how do you? Yeah. So anyway, I put it away a few times and I took it back out and it still said you were being summoned yeah. to jury. Yeah. You know, I thought it would just go away. Yeah. And it was a deadline, so I had to respond to it. So last night I took out all the documentation and I went online and I... Yeah. 
keep my number in and I found Nicola Talent, it comes up on, you mm. know, on the, it made it even worse when it was yeah. on that, not on yeah. paper, you know, your summons for jury duty. So I look in the booklet and like, we aren't excused. No, we are no, not on no. that big, long list of no. people who are excused. No. No. Not exempted. Well, I, unless you could, I, I presume. Unless I had a criminal conviction. Or, well, if you have pre knowledge, I think. Or I had a decent job. Yeah. Because there's actually people in really proper jobs that get yeah. exemption. Exactly. However, m- normally criminals don't want to go before the special criminal court. But I'm sure if they see you if on they the saw jury. Me, head in. <laughs> so, begging. anyway, what I did was I decided I'd just, you can write a little note to yeah. the registrar and explain to the registrar why you don't think yeah. you'd be suitable for yeah. jury duty. <laughs> yeah. So I sat down to do that and I was reading it back and I was actually explaining mm. myself to be a complete bigot who <laughs> yeah, didn't yeah. believe in the course of justice. <laughs> right, right, you know, right. I actually, I mean, if I was, yeah. and, and Rita was the name of the registrar and hopefully yeah. she will, she will see sense and uh, excuse yeah. me. But I had to say like, you know, I, I work, I, I do this podcast and I'm the investigations yeah. editor of the Sunday World and I didn't want to say which is a, yeah. like which is a tabloid newspaper that maybe, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't wait for justice to you be served. You just said I'm kind of like Kim Jong-un, I'm more of a guilty until proven innocent. Well, that's I ended up nearly, I had to kind of scribble that out a few times because I was going to say, am I going to say, am I actually communicating to this lady Rita that I believe that people are guilty before they're proven, sorry, that they're, (laughs) yeah, they're guilty until proven innocent. And, you know, then I have all these biases and everything, but that's what I ended up having to put down. I looked awful on paper. Well... The paper, do, paper doesn't lie. Or I does did. No, I case? did. You try it and someday, I, you know, it was, I would be, it was I would, awful. I, I, would be I, let them, of, I would be let them go free. They probably just made a mistake. I kind of just sort of thought like, where did I, what was the, the big mistake <laughs> that I made so early on that I'm, I'm not able to just put something really dignified down and say, no. I work for such yeah, and such place yeah. and I believe I'm exempted but from do, this. And in America, like in America, do the defense get the say I don't want that juror on the on the case in well which I case think they'd you, all say they don't I want me I mean that's I that's that a definite it's grace. just to go into that mill of people and have to <laughs> sort of go sorry <laughs> excuse me I did uh, try and listen maybe they'll say you're still coming in maybe so and we'll bring the we'll go down and do a pod from that I think we? that's possibly illegal Is but okay. <laughs> we'll definitely check before we yeah. do that well, I practically told Rita that I didn't believe in, in the laws of the country, so I don't think I would no. have been suitable. Anyway, no. so let's hope that I'm let's, not. For everyone's yeah, sake. For everybody's sake. Yeah. Right. Well, I'll fill you in next week how I get on. I hope to hear back from Rita soon. Thank you. All right. Nicola. Have a good weekend. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from SundayWorld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.